0: This morning, as you might be aware, we're not in Kings. We'll get there in a couple of weeks, uh, continuing our series there. We're actually in John chapter 8. I hope you're still there. I hope you still have your place in your Bible there. Uh, If I had to pick any of the chapters that make up the Gospels that are perhaps the most important, this would be one of the most important chapters in all of the Gospels. Uh, Another uh, one chapter that just is so significant to the life of Jesus, to the ministry of the church, to the doctrines of the church that we hold dear, another one would perhaps be Luke 24. There's others perhaps that we could insert in there, but this chapter in particular is very consequential. The bulk of it sees Jesus with this sort of back and forth conversation between he and this group of, uh, we could say, religious elite, the scribes and the Pharisees of the day. And they're exchanging words, mostly about the identity of Jesus. As you might know, in verse number 12, he... Uh, makes this very bold and perhaps blatant statement as he invokes that very very important sort of name or designation in verse number 12 where he says Jesus again says unto them I am the light of the world Those two words, I am, are immediately shots in that conversation that harkens all the way back to those early days of the Old Testament. In which that burning bush spoke to Moses. And Moses asks the bush, who uh, should I say has sent me? And he says, the bush says, Jesus in the bush, Yahweh in that bush, in that fire says, I am that I am has sent you. And you can see here Jesus is invoking that in reference to himself, and this doesn't sit well with the Pharisees. In verse thirteen, they say you're you're lying. You're basically bearing false witness, as they said. Your record in verse thirteen, they say, is not true. And they continue on for all of these verses, making a racket, uh, claiming up and down that Jesus is not who he says he is. You can't. You can't be. And that's why if you examine this particular chapter, uh, the reason why it's so important. Because over and over again, Jesus is urging these men who knew the law, who knew the scriptures, to realize what he is claiming. Which is his deity. He's claiming that he is God in the flesh. Which of course we believe and know he is. That's why over and over again, he reiterates this thought. Look at verse 18. I am the one that bears witness of myself and the father that sent me beareth witness of me. Again, he uses that name. Look at verse 23. And he said unto them, ye are from beneath. I am from above. You're of this world. I am not of this world. Look at verse 28. Then said Jesus unto them, when ye have lifted up the Son of Man, then ye shall know that I am he, and that I do nothing of myself. But as my Father hath taught me, I speak these things. And this all culminates in that very important verse in verse number 58. Where he says, verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. It's very clear then throughout this whole chapter. Jesus is making it almost unmissable, unmistakable. I am the I am in incarnate form. (laughs) In the flesh, I am the I am in the flesh. And this leaves the Pharisees just absolutely frustrated. They're so, like, just flummoxed by this idea that this teacher from Nazareth is claiming this I am name for himself. And they're so furious, in fact, that they start picking up stones to stone Jesus on the spot. Verse 59, just look at what they do. Then they took up stones to cast at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. (laughs) If they didn't get it already, you would think that them wanting to clamber around Jesus and stone him, and then all of a sudden, poof, he's gone, that they would get the point. Of course they don't, because from this point on, they're conspiring to crucify him, to murder him, to get rid of him. But the Pharisees, these scribes, they, they didn't really know what to do with Jesus this conversation is sort of the outpouring of that puzzle that they're trying to solve if you we're not going to read these verses but if you look at the end of chapter 7 of John that's exactly what this conversation is all these religious leaders come together and what do we make of this guy he's from Galilee but he's talking about being the messiah but how can they're confused They're struggling with what to make sense of this guy Jesus with how they've interpreted the scripture. So then you can kind of see them. They're so frustrated when they come into this conversation in chapter 8. That when Jesus is making all these statements and when he finally says it at the end. I am the I am. It's like the straw that broke the camel's back so to speak. It's like the last thing they wanted to hear. And I think that that's what makes this... Chapter significant, but also because of what precedes it. Now, this is another way of perhaps introducing the story, which is just to say that this opening scene is very significant, but also very confusing. And perhaps it could be confusing for you this morning. It's a Maybe it represents a stumbling block, and I think it's not just because of what occurs, as Pastor Nathan has just read, but also because this passage is heavily called into question. Maybe uh, if you're reading from one of those newer Bible translations, you might see that it's marked off with brackets or a footnote or maybe it's in parentheses or something like that. And that's because uh, amongst Bible scholars and those who research manuscripts and all those sorts of things, there's some debate about whether this passage belongs in the Bible at all. And the reason is because in some manuscripts, this passage is right here where it is. And then in others, it's just missing. So it's led to some confusion. In fact, as I was doing some reading in this past couple weeks about this particular passage, it's a lot of confusion. A lot of uh, sort of struggle with how to make sense of this. Leading some to question whether preachers should even preach from it. Well, here I am. I'm preaching from it, so... Maybe that lets you know where I stand on this particular issue, but uh, all that to say, I'm not going to bore you with textual criticism because that's a boring enough topic in its own, uh, and no one wants to hear me talk about that, but uh, I I believe wholeheartedly that this passage is here, right here for a specific reason. I believe it's authoritative and I believe it's inspired because I believe in the word of God, yes. But also because I believe that God preserves his word also, yes. I believe that this passage is right here to give us the perfect backdrop to what Jesus says in verse number 12. Why is he the light of the world and why is that such a frustrating statement in the ears of the Pharisees? Because of what occurred just before it. Because of what occurs in these verses, it doesn't match up to them. And that's why it's here. It's meant to sort of upset the notions of what the Pharisees thought the Messiah was come to do. Of what this this one who was sent from God was supposed to be. And he proves it right here in these verses. He shows them what it really looks like for the Messiah to be the anointed one of the Father. As it says in Daniel, the ancient of days, the light of the world as Jesus claims himself to be. It's all the more weighty because of this, I would say, very provocative scene. Notice verse number 2. It says that, Early in the morning he goes into the temple. Jesus does. And all the people came unto him. And he sat down and he began teaching them. This crowd of people starts circling around him. He's no doubt in the court of the treasury. In fact if you read later on in chapter 8. You, they, they, uh, John talks about that. That he's in the court of the treasury. Which would also be called the court of the women. Which was a very common court in the temple structure. And it was Very normal, it was very sort of like an everyday thing, so to speak, for someone to come in there and start lecturing, start basically preaching on the law or spiritual matters or some such wisdom or truth that they have to share. So this was a normal thing. And Jesus coming there in the temple, the people recognizing his reputation for teaching, they throng around him and he starts to teach them on some such we don't know. But suddenly the crowd at the back, they start stirring. There's this commotion from the back row, so to speak. It's distracting. It's distracting everyone who's trying to listen. And eventually they realize that it's it's revealed that this commotion is being caused by the scribes and Pharisees themselves. Which, it's not just because of them. Because their presence wouldn't have been surprising in this place. But in this particular instance it was. Because of who they had with them. Notice again verse number uh, 3. And the scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman. Taken in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst. They say unto him master. This woman was taken in adultery. In the very act. Now Moses And the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what sayest thou? It's a very staggering scene, is it not? In the middle of this open courtyard, this gang of Pharisees who thought themselves so religious and so elite, they dragged this woman in front of Jesus. As it says there, John says, they're reminding us, they caught her in the very act of being unfaithful to her spouse. And they bring her in front of all of that assembly for everyone to cast a very judging eye. Just sit. Sit in that shame for a minute. Put yourself in either the shoes of one of the crowd or put yourself in the shoes of this woman. The embarrassment... The guilt, the reproach, the degradation, the demeaning motivations of these men as they drag her into that place. It's just pure, public, brutal humiliation. With this, we don't know what led up to her indiscretion and her infidelity. But it must have been an awkward scene. (laughs) At least that's what I think of. (laughs) Jesus is teaching, this woman comes in, and they start declaring what has happened, and you just have that awkward moment. And this is done by these men, these religious guys. And they would say they're doing it with the best of intentions. They're pious men who know the law, right? Here, we've caught this woman. She's a lawbreaker. And you know what the law says we do to lawbreakers, right, Jesus? You know what the law says, right? Their words just are giving off this holier-than-thou sort of flair that, of course, they have never been caught in the very act, we could say. But don't be fooled by these guys. They're not as religious and pious as they want you to believe. Because I would say, very truthfully, that they're not at all concerned about this woman. She's she's not really a concern of theirs. They don't really care for this woman and her life and her past and her situation and the decisions that have led up to this horrible decision. They don't care about her. She was just a pawn in their plan. As it says, look at verse 6. This they said tempting him, tempting Jesus that they might have to accuse him. They're building a case against Jesus. They don't like this guy. They want to get rid of him. He's teaching all these crazy things about destroying the temple. And how you should love your neighbor as yourself. He's, he's saying all these uh, incredible things. Talking about forgiveness. They got to get rid of this guy. And so they start building this case. And that's what exactly what they're doing. They're building a case against Jesus. He's the one they're after. They're trying to catch Jesus in the very act we could say so these scribes and Pharisees they don't care about this woman they just want to exploit her disgrace for their own cause and if that isn't slimy I don't know what is they're exploiting her but I would also say they don't even really care about the law either you know they come before Jesus look at what the law says to do to this type of person and they're right If you go to Leviticus 20 you don't have to Or Deuteronomy 22 They're repeating the law And they're right It commands stoning But (laughs) if their motivation was genuine and honest To uphold we could say The letter of the law There would be another person there That they drug with them The man The man who was unfaithful too But instead they don't really care about the situation They just want to exploit it for their own cause They don't really care about the law Or else they would have had the guy there too and have Jesus condemn both of them as the law says. They're out for themselves. (laughs) The Pharisees are always invoking this striking image of people who are so self-concerned. And it's easy at times to point at them, you know. Like every Disney movie, right? They have bad guys. The bad guy who's always trying to do something villainous. And it's easy if you're reading the scriptures to be like, look at the Pharisees. They're the bad guys. And I have to stop and say, I'm that guy. Whenever we're reading about the Pharisees, stop and examine and say, how have I been that guy? How have I thought so highly of myself? And that's these Pharisees. They think they have Jesus cornered. They think they've put Jesus in a little box. You see, this whole thing was about entrapping Jesus in order to say something by which they could pounce and make their case and get rid of him for good. And they think they got him with this. You see, if Jesus agrees with their assessments of this woman and her situation, and he says, yeah, let the stoning commence, because that's what the law says. They could have him tried for superseding Roman government. Only the Roman government in this time frame could authorize execution. So this would have to go before another trial before they could actually carry it out. But instead, uh, so if Jesus agrees, then he would be uh, superseding Roman law. However, if Jesus lets this woman go, he would then be guilty of violating Mosaic law. He's in, we could say, a no-win situation according to the Pharisees. They think they got him. No one. If he chooses one way, he's violating the Roman law. If he goes this other way, he's violating Mosaic law. And Jesus has everywhere talked about upholding the law. Matthew 5 17, I have not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill the law. It's a pickle, right? <laughs> he's in a corner. At least the Pharisees think that they got him. But notice what Jesus does. Because he doesn't take the bait. He doesn't want to play this game that the Pharisees are trying to play with, you know, pick a side, Jesus. You got to pick a side. You got to go this way or that way. But notice, I love verse 6 because he knows, he knows their end game. He knows they're tempting him. Jesus knows that and knows what he does. But Jesus, verse 6, stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. He just kind of ignores them. This divine dismissal that he displays for them. He just stoops to the ground. Starts writing something in the dirt with his finger. He doesn't have time for their morals. For their supposed law and their ethics. Instead he kneels to the ground and he starts writing. And again here this is another one of those points where there's a ton of speculation on what he's writing. The short answer is no one knows because the Bible doesn't tell us. It's not recorded for us. However, I would just say this. That considering what, whatever he wrote in the ground. Whatever he wrote. Considering what that does to the Pharisees. And also considering other scriptures. I think it's safe to just that he's writing a word of law. There's three other instances in the scriptures where God himself writes with his finger. Exodus Chapter 31, Deuteronomy chapter 9, and in fact, in Daniel chapter 5, with that feast, that party of Belshazzar, remember that? And all of a sudden, there's a finger writing on the wall. <laughs> that would be a striking buzzkill to a party if you ever saw one. But what is the commonality in each of those instances? Daniel 5, Deuteronomy 9, Exodus 31. It's always words of law that are being written by the finger of God. Which is just to say, in this case, in John chapter 8, I think Jesus knows what he's doing. Of course he is, he's Jesus. But I think he's very being very deliberate here. He is, as John has already made evident, if you go back, you don't have to, John chapter 1, he is God in the flesh, the word of the Father who has come in skin and bone. And so kneeling to the ground and writing, what is he doing? He is basically saying, through no words but through actions, I'm the author and giver of the law that you're appealing to. (laughs) You think you have me in a corner? I'm the giver of the law that you're trying to appeal to with all your haughty righteousness, with all of your pride, and all of your sanctimony. (laughs) I think that's what Jesus is doing. (laughs) He's writing in the dirt the very words of his father. And watch how the Pharisees respond, verse 7. So when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself. And said unto them, he that is without sin among you, let him cast a stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. They pester him again. They press him. Give us an answer. Give us an answer to our moral quandary. And Jesus, (laughs) he stands up. And he turns their whole dilemma back at them. He says, okay, okay, step right up. You who have no sin, you step right up and cast a stone at her. You who are perfect, go ahead and start pelting this girl for what she has done. I imagine those words being followed by deafening Silence. Because if you prick the human heart about that very thing, the human heart knows it's not perfect. The human heart knows that there's something wrong, there's something broken, there's something messed up. It's because of the fall. We know inherently that there's something off. So what Jesus is saying, you who are without sin, you who have nothing wrong with yourself, go ahead, cast something at her. It's a stunning reversal of the law back on these guys. And they have to stand there silently. At which point Jesus, again, verse number Eight, he stoops back down to the ground, he writes in the dirts again, and he lets that silence expose the Pharisees and the scribes. He lets that silence almost do the work of conviction for him. And it works, as it says in verse nine, that they all were convicted in their own conscience. And then you start hearing these thuds. As one by one they start dropping their stones. These men who were so ready to start throwing fastballs at this girl that they caught in the act of adultery. Because they are so mighty and righteous. Start throwing their stones to the ground. Letting them fall. And they start walking away from that scene. Until at last there's no one left. Except for Jesus and this woman. This, yes, unfaithful Sinner. Who's, I imagine, just prostrate before him. Fallen to the ground, I imagine, in just overwhelming guilt and shame. She knows that. (laughs) And that's when Jesus does something amazing. Notice, and it says, and Jesus was left alone. And the woman standing in the midst, verse 10. And when Jesus had lifted himself up and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? She said, no man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Rather than do as these Pharisees did and browbeat this woman, this woman who has been, yes, unfaithful and she is disgraced here in this courtyard. Rather than berate her with more words of law, more words of judgment. He looks into her eyes and he says, don't worry about your accusers. I've taken care of them for you. And by the way, I've taken care of your condemnation too. go and sin no more. That are just brimming with hope and grace and good news and love that comes from the Heavenly Father. And at first, I think we have to stop and say, Whoa, how can Jesus say that? Can Jesus say that? Is He making light of this woman's sin? Is he excusing the ways in which she has failed and how she has been uh, unfaithful and how she has acted in infidelity? Of course, no, he's not at all. And I would say, if that's where your mind's at, so you might be in line with the Pharisees. Thinking in your own sense of righteousness. Because remember a couple of things. Who is Jesus? John 1.14, he is God in the flesh. And as we know and believe, we wholeheartedly hold firm, he is the perfect one, the sinless one. The one who knew no sin. So therefore, we could say that when Jesus is inviting people who are without sin to cast the first stone, he's actually just referencing himself. He was the only one without sin in that whole entire scene, which means he's the only one who had a lawful right to have a stone in his hand. He's the only one who could properly judge this particular woman and what is he doing? He's stooping to the ground. He's stooping to where she was. Which I take to be take to be an incredible portrait of who this Jesus is and what his mission is on this whole earth entirely. Because remember, where is Jesus headed? He's headed to the cross. In a couple of pages, we're gonna, and John is going to flip over, and the rest of John is going to cover a week of Jesus' life. The week in which we are now starting to celebrate, Palm Sunday. Is it going to begin soon after this particular instance. In which we're going to see exactly those events of the last week of Jesus' life. And throughout that time, as that time is heading near, you can examine all of the Gospels, every single one. As the time for the week of the Passion comes closer and closer, he becomes more overt, more explicit with these ideas of death and resurrection. With the idea that he is the sacrifice for sinners. At first, it kind of begins vaguely in his ministry. And the more he goes on, the more he goes on, he starts to be more explicit. Till you get to like Mark chapter 8, remember? Remember? And he makes that first bold declaration that the Son of Man has to endure these things. That's where Peter makes that confession. We don't have to preach that again. But regardless, the same narrative is true. All through the Gospels, as he gets closer to the cross, he starts getting more and more overt about that mission and about what he's going to do there, about what's going to happen on that cross. Which is namely as it says in Matthew 3.15. That he's going there to fulfill all righteousness. That's what he's doing. When he is ascending the cross. And being spiked there with Roman nails. He's also at the same time enacting this wonderful act of stooping. This wonderful act of condescension. To where we are. To our places Of failure and guilt and shame and disgrace and infidelity. And and all of those ways in which we are sinners in the eyes of this God who is perfectly holy. That's what Jesus has come down and stooped to that place for us. On the cross, that's what he's doing. He's taking all of that on himself. Isaiah 53, he's taking all of our griefs and all of our sorrows on his own shoulders. And we could likewise say that on the cross, what Jesus does, he absorbs the condemnation that you and I rightly deserve. That's what we deserve. He takes it, though. He takes it on himself in order, as it says in Romans 6, that he might free us to live and walk in newness of life. That's what he does. He takes our condemnation and says, go and sin no more. He takes what is our past that is riddled with iniquity and adultery and unfaithfulness and shame and wickedness and pride and arrogance and anger and all of those things. He takes all that and he says, go and sin no more because here's my life. He wants to give us his life. Give us. That life that we might live for him and walk with him forever. And that's what he does. That's what he does for this woman. He put himself in between her and her sin. And he silences her accusers. Where are your accusers? They're gone. Because I've silenced them. And I've swallowed your guilt. And I've cleared your record. And now I'm freeing you. Go sin no more. And how, does, how is she able to do that? Because of what precedes that promise. Notice. Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. This word of no condemnation goes before the word of walking worthy. Because that's the only way we're ever able to walk worthy. <laughs> because of the promise of no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. My friends, that's what he's done for every single person in this room this morning and every single person who's ever been alive on this earth. This is what Jesus has done. He's taken our place of sin and guilt and shame and he's in return given us this word of incredible, unconditional pardon. He's taken your verdict so that you and I could Have his righteousness. You see that's what is happening here in the scene. Jesus is already acting in the way in which he has acted from the beginning. That he's going to the cross. That he is the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. So he can say neither do I condemn you. Because he knows he's going to take that condemnation in just a few days. He says there's no more condemnation for you. Why? Because he already knows he's going to swallow it at Golgotha. He's gonna take it on himself. He's gonna take it and bear it in his own body. This is the good news. Our judge, the one who can condemn us, has become our advocate, the one who doesn't condemn us, because he is also our substitute, the one who takes our condemnation. Marvelous news! Good news! The judge becomes our advocate who is our substitute. And that's why we can sing and shout Romans 8, one. There is therefore now no condemnation for them who are in Christ Jesus. Praise the Lord. Because of this work of the Son of God. You know we sang that hymn last week. And I just couldn't get away from those words. And I was studying. I was like man this is perfect. And can it be The last stanza, you know what it says? No condemnation, now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him my living head and clothed in righteousness divine. Bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. My friends, that's our song. No condemnation, now I dread. Why? Because he's taken it taken it he's put Put himself in the place of sinners yes very very incredible sinners very great sinners like this woman this poor woman who was drug out as it says of the very act into this open place of shame and that's each of us this morning that's us and he's put himself in between us in our sin. Because that's who he is. He's showing himself as the glorious redeemer of people who deserve something completely opposite. They deserve judgment. They deserve to be, uh, uh, to be uh, tried and crucified. And he says, no, nope, I'm taking that on myself. My friends, this morning... For you who repent and believe in Jesus. This is your story. Your story is this story. John 8, 1 through 11. is your testimony. The law has done its work. It's brought you into an open place of open public shame for all to look down and cast judging eyes on you because you failed. You haven't lived up to the law and you can never do it. You have been caught in the very act. And Jesus says, I have no condemnation left to give because I've borne it in myself now we are free to sin no more my friends that is where we are this morning we can rejoice because God has made those chains fall off those chains of looking for life in every other place for looking for hope in every other avenue they've fallen off and we are free No condemnation. Now I dread. That is our testimony. That is our song. Let us bow our heads and close our eyes.